KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. 2023 has been an awful year for disasters. The raging fires in Canada and Hawaii, massive flooding from Manhattan to the Mediterranean, catastrophic tornadoes and earthquakes. Here in the United States, storms have done the most damage. So far, 18 of them have cost at least a billion dollars, and that doesn't even get into the human toll. So why is this happening? Imagine you go to your favorite coffee shop and you get a couple extra shots of espresso. That extra fuel is parallel to what we see happening around our oceans and in our atmosphere. There's more fuel for the storms. According to Dr. Steven Strader at Villanova University, this is just one part of the equation. Societal factors and behavior also are part of it. But Dr. Samantha Chapman, also from Villanova, thinks there's a reason to have some hope. The amount of money that is now flowing from the federal government and the Inflation Reduction Act to do things about natural ecosystems and the built environment to help us adapt to these very big problems are huge. Never seen before in my career and any of my colleagues. I'm Matt Leon, and today on KYW News Radio In-Depth, Stephen Strader and Samantha Chapman join me to explain the intricacies of why storms are getting worse, how we can combat collective disillusionment about climate change, and the next big catastrophic events that could be on the horizon. It seems to me that things are getting more intense. Maybe not necessarily the number of things, but I feel like those once-in-a-century storms now seem to happen once every couple years. Flooding that I'd never seen in my lifetime in certain areas we're now seeing. Am I exaggerating, or are we in a point where, where we're seeing much more intense storms and weather situations? Stephen, I'll start with you. Yeah, well, you know, it comes down to the two types of storms we talk about. There's what we call severe convective storms, which are thunderstorms, and then we have tropical storms. And we are much more confident on the climate change side of things when it comes down to how climate change is influencing tropical weather or tropical storms, hurricanes. And there's a lot of things happening. Recent research, and we're talking the last 10 years, is finally starting to understand that storms are intensifying much quicker than they have in the past because we have a warmer ocean that's the fuel for these storms. They're also um, putting down more rain when they do make landfall. So storms that may have rained two or three inches over, say, coastal New Jersey are now potentially raining three, four inches. They are putting more rain over a shorter period of time. There's a lot of other factors that are playing a role when it comes to the, the increasing impacts of storms. But from a climate change standpoint, we are just now starting to figure this out. And yeah, we're seeing more rain, more wind. All of that is is true. Sam, I know when it comes to you know storms, we kind of look at them through the eyes of how is this going to affect me? Is my basement going to flood? Do I have to worry about shingles being blown off the roof? What is the effect these have on the overall environment and you know, waterways, marshways, things that maybe the average person's not thinking about. Is the effect on them as intense as it is maybe on what we see every day? You're right. I think think about these things more and the, their, how they affect natural ecosystems. And one example, of course, is the gigantic fires that are happening in Canada, which, you know, warmer air is thirstier air. And I steal that from Kate Marble, who's a great climate scientist, but it sucks up more water from the soils and out of the trees and therefore you have this 
you know, conflagration the size of Missouri at this point that have burned in Canada. So all those natural systems and the organisms that inhabit them are really at risk. In terms of the wetlands that I work in, you know, we can think of, we now have really good sense of what happened, let's say, in Florida from Hurricane Irma and Matthew, which were now years ago, but the the tallies have been taken in terms of their their costs, right? And so well, things that cost, you know, 80 billion to $10 billion in damages for humans also cause big damages in terms of the oyster populations, because you get a change in the salinity when you get all the more rain that Stephen's talking about, or you get these huge storm surges that take out some of the plants and mangroves that I work in. So the natural systems are certainly just as threatened as we are, although I would say that you know, they have seen pretty dramatic changes over the last couple of years, and yet many of them are still resilient. Stephen, is this life? You know, is there still wiggle room that we could do things to try to mitigate this? Well, first, we have to take a step back and, and think about how we discuss the term disaster or how we discuss the impacts of, of things, hazards like tropical storms, tornadoes, hail, all of that. One of the things that we hear a lot is that was this event caused by climate change? The real way we should say that, or the more accurate way, is what is climate change contributing to that event? In other words, uh, you know, the analogy that we see used a lot is imagine you go to your favorite coffee shop and you get a couple extra shots of espresso in your coffee. That extra fuel is is parallel to what we see happening around our oceans and in our atmosphere. There's more fuel for the storms. But the other side of the disaster coin is society changing, which is happening at the same time. It's sort of a two-headed monster that's taking and causing more disasters than ever before. And that's in terms of loss of life as well as, as monetary losses. It's hard to say whether, you know, we're, you know, it's going to it's going to get worse before it gets better. And that's just because the climate system has momentum, like a train going down the tracks. If it slams on the brakes, it doesn't stop instantly. So we have to start taking on mitigation activities and doing things both on the societal and what we call the built environment, the stuff that we build, our homes, our businesses. We have to be smarter about how and where we're developing. And then we also have to be aware that our emissions are leading to more greenhouse gases and then increasing the greenhouse gas effect, leading to more severe weather and, and, and supercharging storms, as I've said. So this is kind of where we're headed. So it, it's really important to start thinking about mitigation and policy now because the decisions we make today are going to affect our children and affect our grandchildren. And and it's not going to be changing in an instant. It's going to take a little bit. So, yeah, we have to get used to this. And, and the rule is, is that we can't eliminate the hazard or the threat, but we have to learn to live with them. And that means we have to change the way we've been doing things or we're bound to repeat the past. Sam, you mentioned the wildfires in Canada we have seen these fires in different places where it affects us thousands of miles away. We go out and it's a giant hazy day and you can't figure out why. And you're like, oh, it's because there was a, this giant wildfire. I, but I don't think for the average person, wildfire is something that they think about when they think about climate change because it's not quote unquote weather. Kind of break down the impact what we're seeing that's leading to these immense wildfires. Yeah. So, you know, these happened a few years ago in Australia and were devastating for the people there. They've happened in California. And I think in some ways when we here in Philadelphia, we're like, oh, our air quality is so bad. What a bummer. All of my colleagues in California were like, yeah, welcome to our lives. Right. I think that this is something that to your point earlier, we do need to get used to because as Stephen said, 
we need to adapt to a situation where warmer air is going to suck up more water and that is going to make fuels drier. And so the trees, these massive stands of trees that are standing all over Canada and, you know, parts of the U.S., right, including our deciduous trees, are they are fuel, right? We need them because they take up carbon dioxide out of our atmosphere and they lock it away. But they, when they dry out, they can easily turn into a source for carbon, right? And that's exactly what's happened with the Canadian forests is because they were so dry because of the warm air, and the lack of precipitation for a while, actually sucking that water out of those plants, they were essentially a big tinderbox, right? And so even little lightning strikes or little fires that would have normally in the past burned small areas and then kind of hit against forests that were a little wetter, just hit this massive wall of fuel and just kept going. And they are still going, right? It's October almost. These things should be over. And now, once again, like these once a century storms, these things are happening, you know, kind of on the regular. Is that another thing we've we've just kind of got to adjust to and accept? I think so. I think that, as Stephen said, there are societal impacts, too. Right. We know that in the western parts of the U.S., there's been Smokey the Bear fire suppression for a long time. Right. That has also helped to build up the fuel However, there's also been active management of these forests that have been trying to remove wildfires, particularly at the, the human forest interface, right? Making sure that those trees are thinned. Like I used to live in Arizona, northern Arizona, and those areas near where people live are thinned out. But in terms of your question about the, the longer wildfire season, yes, I think the, se- the growing season is longer for plants now, which is a good thing in some ways because they are able to take up more carbon dioxide, but also the wildfire season is probably going to be longer. Stephen, is one of the reasons why the alarm doesn't get rung like it probably should with what we're seeing is we look at all of these things as kind of one-offs, but you kind of have to look at it, the whole picture, like air quality issues for months at a time in California. Wow. Now that you think about it, it's getting impossible to get property insurance in Florida. And that seems like a disaster. Like, you really need to look at the things in totality and not as a, a series of one-offs? Yeah, that's exactly right. As humans, we're, the general public is very short-term thinking. You know, It's hard to get people to save for retirement. It's hard to get people to think more than what's in front of them in the short term. And some of that's a survival mechanism for a lot of people. They're just trying to make it day by day, paycheck to paycheck. But unfortunately, that creates issues down the road. And that's what we see happening with climate change decision-making is is that we think we can pull the trigger 20, 30 years from now to, to start reducing our carbon footprints and, and thinking more about renewable energy. But we have to do that now, and, and we're seeing the effects of that. You know, Some of the things that we can do on that realm is that we can change our energy infrastructure. Renewables are now outpacing and, and are going to soon be cheaper, if not already, than coal and, and oil. And that infrastructure, we, we've seen in the last three or four years, the electric cars and, and battery systems that we have really taking off. And those are all positive steps. But what we have to also understand is that people get disaster amnesia. The disaster happens, and then we quickly try to build back right to the way we were before. It's always to try to get back to the status quo. And it's not always people's fault, because if you look at the media and you go to every major news website, we hop from disaster to disaster to disaster. We're less than a month or right around a month removed from the Hawaii fires, and we aren't even talking about them anymore. 
We are three weeks removed from the Libya floods, which are killing over 10,000 people or have killed over 10,000 people. So we're inundated with all this information, which makes decision making very hard because unfortunately, the solutions, there is no magic bullet fix. It's going to take a lot of little changes that are going to have a, a combined bigger effect. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Stephen Strader and Dr. Samantha Chapman right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. And we are back on KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation with Dr. Samantha Chapman and Dr. Stephen Strader, both of Villanova University. For the average person, it can be overwhelming. You see all this. And I've had moments where you sit there in front of the recycle box and you're like, should I put this in? Like, what's the point? Like, there's this, you know, I'm just pulling an example, like this giant oil spill or you hear, you know, these awful environmental disasters. And you're like, how in the world is me throwing this relish jar out going to, to, to help? What do you say to people that do get disillusioned just because they're just overwhelmed with, with all this? I'll say that I think that, as Stephen said, there are some very hopeful things happening, right? So, some very hopeful things with energy. And I'll just say another in my realm. So the, the amount of money that is now flowing from the federal government and the Inflation Reduction Act to do things about natural ecosystems and the built environment to help us adapt to these very big problems are huge. Never seen before in my career, in any of my colleagues' career. So I'm about to submit a proposal in a couple of months this new transformational coastal resilience program that NOAA has. This is hundreds of millions of dollars, in some cases billions of dollars, that are flowing to actually do things, not just study it, right, but actually like put natural systems on the ground or built systems on the ground that are going to help people adapt. And so one thing I would say to people is elections matter. The other thing I would say is that personal action, I can see why it feels fruitless. And I feel like personal action can also take part, you can sort of play the role of modeling for your friends, right? You don't want to be preachy. Nobody wants to hear about it, but like by reducing waste, by using less water, by driving an electric car, if you can afford it, by using less energy, it does matter because then it sort of brings this sense of mind that you are doing something. It isn't contingent upon big governments local governments, universities like ours to do make the right decisions that can facilitate people to make those decisions, right? We need like we have chargers on campus that people can plug into. That makes it easier to have an electric car than charge it at your house if you live in a place that can't house a charger. So structures have to matter, but individuals can do things like, in my view, you know, having a garden with pollinator friendly plants, like our next crisis beyond climate change is biodiversity. And so by having that garden, you can absorb more stormwater that helps with climate change. It also brings back bees and butterflies and all these things. I know I'm talking about something totally different, but individuals can have a big impact in many ways that can be helpful. Yeah, but I think it is something different, but I think to the point, it is all kind of connected. Like it might seem like this is a completely different topic, but You don't have to work hard to kind of reverse engineer back to what we're talking about. That's exactly right, Matt. Yep. Can I ask Stephen a question? These big storms and, you know, it's hard to get insurance now. And I've been seeing some things from in Florida and other parts of the coastal areas which have had big storms. And I know he studies a lot kind of the built environment, how we're setting ourselves up for disaster at that 
because insurance is so expensive, because middle-class people can't afford to rebuild in these areas, it's almost gentrifying coasts, right? With big resorts and things in these areas where big hurricanes have hit. And what does that mean for the U.S. in general, you know, Jersey or Florida or these places, you know, that are getting hit by bigger storms? I'm curious about your ideas on that. Yeah, this, this is a, it's a huge problem because what we see happening right now and along our coastlines is a great example, is there is no financial incentive for people to leave the coast. And that's because you can go all the way back to 1900 and Carl Fisher, who is the who is the the builder of Indianapolis Motor Speedway and was sort of a, an adrenaline junkie and went down to Florida and said, this place is great. You can make a lot of money here. And the rest is history. We started building in Florida. And what that meant was filling in marshes and wetlands just because we thought that they would be great places to put up resorts and hotels and homes. And that kickstarted why. And, and I always tell people, if we could build into the Everglades, we would have already. They would continue to develop as long as they, they have the money to be made. So what that means is we have a short-term goal. As a developer, you look at it and go, well, I have to pay a lot in insurance premiums right now, and this is where they're at now, but I make that back in tenfold because people are going to come here to vacation. Then the disaster hits, the hazard hits, creates the disaster, and what happens is they pay their insurance, and then when an emergency declaration is made by the governor ask the president for, for disaster relief, federal tax dollars bail them out. And they take that money and they build right back to where they were. And it's right back to the status quo. And we end up with repetitive losses. We've tried to address this with the National Flood Insurance Program, and that has fallen on its face for a lot of reasons. And it's still available. It's just not picked up any steam and it's not the best. I don't worry about those individuals that are developers because they're going to helicopter out of there when the storm comes. I worry about the people that are pumping their gas, the people that are changing their oil, people bagging their groceries. They're the ones left behind, and that's where we see deaths and destruction. And unfortunately, that term vulnerability kicks in. So I think what we're seeing now is the straw starting to break the camel's back in the financial markets. We're seeing insurance companies pull out. We're seeing American Family Insurance pull out of markets. Liberty Mutual pull completely out of markets. And it's happening in places like Florida because you have so many threats. You have sea level rise, tropical storms with sea level rise. You have a political climate that's not ideal for to, to grow the population. Population is getting much older in Florida. And then you have parallels happening in places like Arizona, where 30-year mortgage companies and banks are going, why would we give mortgages to people? Because in 30 years, there won't be water for people to live here. So we see this stress being pushed on people. And I always told people that I think the, the decisions and the changes will have to be financial. That will motivate people more than safety, because we are very good at putting safety out of our minds. The most dangerous thing that any of us probably did today was drive our car. And that's the truth. But that doesn't stop us from driving. And unfortunately, that person has to make the decision, do I live in paradise, my dream home along the ocean, and run the risk of a hurricane? That is still a bet that most people are willing to take until they can't financially. So it's tough. And we're seeing the changes now. And I am hopeful with the new generation, the generations behind me, you know, millennials, Gen Z, and so on. I think that they are seeing this and they're going, hey, what are we doing? And there's ramifications of all these decisions. That's where when we talk about it being circular, I like to talk about it as like a tangled web. 
remember the old one used to have headphones and you know, for your iPhone or whatever, and you'd put them in your pocket and then they get all tangled and you'd have to untangle them. That's sort of what we're dealing with here is it is uh, every decision affects something else. Knowing how our capitalist system works, it's a huge issue in Florida that hasn't broken through nationally because it's looked at more of a local issue. But the insurance situation in Florida, I'm like, huh, you know what? That will be the type of thing that suddenly spurs serious change. It won't be a thousand people dying in this. It won't be, you know, something having to close because of a water level. It's going to be something like that with an insurance. Yeah. And one of the things that I, people always say, well, this doesn't affect me. I don't live in Florida. Well, if you pay federal taxes, your money is getting sub, is subsidizing those losses. No one wants to be the person that says you don't get help from the government when a disaster strikes. The problem arises when we start having repetitive disasters for the same reasons. That is the definition or the pseudo definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. What are some other things over the next decade you think that we're going to have to get used to that are just kind of baked in, that this is just life now? Stephen, I'll start with you. As Sam mentioned, there's other pressing environmental issues. I I would put up sort of this kind of in a current mass extinction event, particularly with insects. I mean, there's a lot of research out there. I remember, you know, driving down a country road when I was little with my dad and bugs were all over the windshield. And now you don't see that because we're losing insects at rapid rates. And that's important for pollinators and all kinds of stuff. We have water issues that we're facing. Um, I think that water is, is one of the going to be one of the biggest drivers of famine and biggest drivers of mass migration. And it goes along with climate change. So what are we doing in the climate change field right now is that we're trying to understand more attribution work. And what that means is what we're trying to figure out is when an event occurs, we want to be able to say, did climate change affect this 50 percent? Did it is it solely would it have not have happened without climate change? And we're really good with that, with heat and flooding and and large scale flooding events and drought. But we're not great at it when it comes to things like tornadic storms or hail. And that's because those storms are much smaller. They're really hard to model. And that's where we're at in the field right now is we're going to learn more about how climate change will likely influence things like tornadoes, hail. If you think about tornadoes, they're a big death threat. They, you know, hit your home. If you're not taking shelter, they can kill. But the insurers... People like Allstate and, and, and Munich Re, which are reinsurance companies, they're worried about hail because hail can, you know, one hailstorm over a, I don't know, a Mercedes dealership means a billion dollar disaster very easily. So we start thinking about improving the science. And it's really exciting to be in the field right now because we're starting to make progress on these things. And you don't see this happen in a lot of other science fields. We're doing something that is is new and fresh and, and something that is really important. I think that we're just going to see more policy and more people dedicating their time to being more sustainable, which is kind of what circumnavigates this whole issue. Yeah, I I think that there are exciting things that are going to happen in urban areas like we live in, like greening of the city, right? So Philadelphia has a goal to get up their tree canopy to 30%. And that that matters because it's better and prettier, but it really matters because it makes people breathe cleaner air. It causes wind breaks that can help them in big storms so their windows don't blow out. 
it t- absorbs a lot of water that comes from flooding. So we can engineer the places that we live in, in some cases, pretty cheaply to adapt to climate change. And I think that we're just going to see massive m- amounts of this, you know, at the Jersey Shore, there is increasing efforts to shore up the dunes, to maintain the marshes behind the barrier islands of the Jersey Shore that actually suck up a lot of the storm energy and help the Jersey Shore. I do think, however, in the next 10 years, in some places, we're going to start to see a retreat from the coast and not necessarily here, but in other parts of the world that are particularly low lying. And then decades out, we may have to think about those kinds of things, because as Stephen said, you can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again, right? You have to, in some cases, decide maybe if this isn't a great place for us to live in floodplains or right next to a forest that might burn in the next five years. So I think that people are going to have to start adapting to climate change and the government is going to have to make it worth their while to do so, right? We can't just say to people, you can't live here anymore. A lot of the money that's flowing right now from the IRA and some of the other big bills that have been passed is going to underserved communities where people cannot afford to move. And so how do we help them either relocate or shore up their coastlines to deal with big storms and floods, things like that. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 